Welcome to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. I am the curator, Garrett Chaffin Kirai. As an older sister and his parents' home showcased the Reagan-era stamp of middle-class comfort, including multiple cars, seasonal wardrobes, and plentiful consumer electronics. Chris is also a smart guy, and he has strong opinions about flowers and hunting, but also ice hockey, courtesy of Gordie Howe. Because Chris and I met in graduate school while in the NYU Cinema Studies program, we each recognized in the other a familiar rolling back of the eyes at so much navel-gazing. We both suffered through symptomatic readings of cultural artifacts, while occasionally offering our own analyses, and we learned how our private interests were out of alignment with the prevailing research goals among higher-rising peers and tenured faculty. This period of grad school was hard for me. I felt as if my native excitement for the subject was whittled away by a set of concerns about academic advancement that I remain too dense to fully understand even today. Still, the basic premise of film studies is that movies are fun, And over many years, Chris and I have shared stories of the many movies we've enjoyed but never felt we could openly celebrate during our now-ended university training. At first, these conversations developed from wanting to complain. Then our common pleasures would get us talking more naturally about then-current Hollywood blockbusters, two obscure movies from the 1970s, with frequent glimpses of the pornographic, the horrifying, and the macabre from all parts of the international movie scene we've been able to bump into on one of New York City's many small theater screens. We also realize that each of us is a student of the popular culture of our respective childhoods that, while defined by the late 1970s and 1980s, are somewhat distinct which adds spice to our friendship. For Chris, John Hughes made movies as if lifted from life, meaning that his coming of age was defined by malls, dating, drinking, awful fashion, and silly hairstyles. Growing up in Southern California, Hughes was less important to me than the surf and sunshine culture generally, and Steven Spielberg was much closer to defining my childhood through another set of malls, dating fantasies, a fear of drinking, terrible fashion, and some of the same silly hair I've seen in Chris's yearbooks and photo albums. Where all of this comes to a head is in the foundation of our then-young friendship in 1997. Among activities Chris was involved with at the time, he wanted to play on the new NYU varsity ice hockey team, so he earned an administrative waiver and made the roster, playing as a reserve wing. One Friday night, I watched the Violets play and shivered under my jacket because I hadn't yet figured out how to dress for winter. The puck moved quickly. Some of the players were quite fast, too, and on a few occasions, I saw the connection between athleticism and violence that attracts so many fans to the sport. I could see the shift from defense to offense, fast breaks, clock management, and cross-checks, and I saw a few slap shots that made me duck behind shatterproof glass. After the game, once Chris and I had relaxed with some cocktails, I asked about the point of certain formations, how it all goes down, what it feels like to play elite college ice hockey. Putting on the foil, he said. Want some? I didn't know how to answer. He looked at me with a twinkle in his eye. They brought their fucking toys with them. I remained confused. I'm listening to the fucking song. He slugged his gin and tonic. You get it? No. The Hanson Brothers. 
Oh, I said, and waited him out, understanding how much broader his experience with a certain kind of movie was when compared to my spoon-fed blockbuster youth. It's Slapshot. Oh, you've never seen it? Paul Newman, right? Yeah, he said, recognizing the game I was prepared to play, ever the encyclopedia of references to which I was ready to add more about George Roy Hill's Slapshot from 1977, a title I'd ignored as a knockoff of John G. Avildsen's Rocky from 1976. It's about this middle-aged hockey player, Reggie Dunlop. Newman? Right. And he's a player coach in the minor leagues. Player coach? A guy who plays on the team and calls the shots. Is this common? Used to be. He slugged another gin and tonic. His team is terrible, and he's got a young star, Ned, a college kid with a troubled marriage. It's a factory town, and Ned knows the factory is closing. Without paychecks, people won't attend games, so Reggie needs a gimmick to keep things going. What happens? Reggie gets subpar players, including the Hanson brothers, three real bruisers. But the fighting is popular. Then the Charlestown Chiefs start winning. People attend games for a blood sport. And... Reggie has an ex-wife he loves, but he can't keep his pants on around other women. He learns that the team's owner doesn't care about the Chiefs because she'll sell them as a tax write-off. Chris's eyes cast through the bottom of his glass. In the championship, Ned strips naked on the ice. The other team's captain punches the ref and the Chiefs win. Is it good? It may be the greatest sports movie ever. I sat on my bar stool, drinking cranberry juice and vodka. There was probably some Wu-Tang Clan. Smoke on the mic like smoking Joe Frazier, the Hellraiser. Raising hell with the flavor. Terrorize the jam like troops in Pakistan. Swinging through your town like your neighborhood Spider-Man. And Chris and I settled into a comfortable evening of knowing that the real heart of film studies was in a movie like Slapshot. My having seen it being less important than the fact that Chris recognized a connection between parts of his youth and the sport he most loves in the world. Years passed. Our friendship deepened and changed through respective family and professional developments. Chris became a leisure industry executive, and I turned into a writer and sometime teacher, and I've seen thousands of other feature films since 1997, but never Slapshot. Then, one recent Saturday evening watching movies with some friends, what should appear but Slapshot in all its warts and glory? As Chris told me, it may be the greatest sports movie ever made. In particular, it strikes my fancy because it combines three features of man-world storytelling that I thoroughly respond to. Vulgarity, work, and class-based motivation. For starters, Slapshot is profane in the way less educated people are profane. It's their rink, it's their ice, and it's their fucking town. But tonight we got our fans with yeah! They spent their own dough to get here, and they came here to see us. Yeah. All right, let's show them what we got, guys. Okay. Right. Yeah. Get out there on the ice and let them know you're there. Get that fucking stick in his side. Let them know you're there. Yeah. Get that lumber in his teeth. Now let them know you're there. Curses and insults, while bigoted and discourteous, are also extremely clear and useful. People without training in different registers of language, those distinctions between the courtroom and the locker room, resort to plain language because it's rarely misunderstood. While this kind of speech can be off-putting, screenwriter Nancy Dowd uses profanity to suggest a real place with real people facing real problems. The movie is also very close to the hockey puck. We spend a lot of time watching players prepare for games, whether taping ankles, polishing sticks, pulling on pads, or pulling out dentures. Victor J. Kemper's camera is often in the rink, 
sliding along at breakaway speed to catch the action, and we are crunched into the mix with a group of second-tier minor league athletes who work on their craft with a mix of finesse and strength. And we are 7-1. There's the faceoff. Charlestown Chiefs seem to be coming down ice with the puck. In the end, though, the lasting value of Slapshot relates with the 1970s concern that reflects on a struggle for dignity in the midst of depersonalized work. Reggie is a scoundrel with no marketable skills beyond being the ice hockey player coach he is, and he knows it. All the men around him are similarly funneled into two forms of physical labor, either factory work that was actively failing through the Rust Belt, or a more idealized use of the body, which, in this case, is sport. Regardless of case, no character in Reggie's orbit has control over his life or career, although several of the supporting women characters seem to. Still, Reggie and the Chiefs are the focus of Slapshot, and they are men without much of a future, save for one last attempt to turn a youthful sports ambition into a new kind of brutal entertainment. That Ned's response is to parade nearly nude and outrage his opponents is meaningful because Ned, Michael Ontkeen, has the necessary education to see the futility of upholding these older values of chauvinistic manhood and soul-killing work. He understands that blue-collar people are at a crossroads, where closely-knit career paths are rapidly ending as bigger economic forces assail cities and towns across America. There simply isn't room for the kinds of vulgar, inflexible men that Slapshot both celebrates and ridicules all the way through the final image when Reggie, riding on the back of a convertible in a victory parade, looks longingly down a side road as his ex-wife Francine, Jennifer Warren, drives away from Charlestown to start a new life somewhere else and away from his toxic present. Well, listen, if things don't work out, you can always get in touch with me in Minneapolis. Bye, Reggie. I can make a goddamn fortune. This is an incredible final image because it sews up the public face of men like Reggie while also revealing a private sorrow. Unable to adapt to the future like Francine, Reggie hopes to ride the final wave of his potential, even while recognizing that the grace he seeks in a loving woman is as fleeting as the joy he no longer feels in a game he's played for decades. Prior to this concluding scene, Reggie approaches team owner Anita McCambridge, Catherine Walker, and learns that she knows he's become successful with a goon squad rather than a properly skilled team. She also knows that he's been trying to get the team traded to another market. You have to understand that I couldn't make enough of a profit to have a sale be worthwhile. And my accountant tells me I'm better off folding the team, taking a tax loss. You mean you could sell us, but you won't? I could probably sell you, but I can't. You know, uh... Oh, we're human beings, you know. 
I have to confess that I've never let the children watch a hockey game. I have a theory that children imitate what they see on a TV screen. They see violence, they'll become violent. They see someone stick up a bank, they'll stick up a bank. Heroin, you name it. You're fucked. What? You are totally fucked. You're garbage for letting us all go down the drain. Are you serious? You could sell us. We're hot. People go nuts for us. You could find a buyer. I don't think you understand finance. Above all other confrontations in Slapshot, above all other moments centered on racist, homophobic, and misogynistic humor, and there are many, this exchange between Anita and Reggie resonates as the movie's underlying point. Ice hockey may be a sport of discipline and work, but it's also an entertainment product that, for those with investment money, isn't all that interesting because it employs the likes of Reggie Dunlop. Two days after seeing Slapshot, I texted Chris to let him know I finally understood the Hanson brothers. What are you guys doing? Putting on the foil every game. Yeah, you want some? Chris reacted to my text with surprise that I was so late to the game, but then he added, pretty accurate commentary on the game at that time and our culture today. Thank you for listening to the Blockbusters and Birdwalks podcast. My name is Garrett Chaffin-Kirai. Boop-boobity-doo!